0: when it was going on, I was feeling sick to the stomach about going to work. So I often took time off work because I was feeling physically ill. My anxiety was so bad. And even when I was at work, I was paranoid. I'm thinking, oh, God, what's the day going to bring? Is he going to ask me in his office? There's a good chance that at some point in your career, you'll
1: come across a workplace bully, either as a victim or a bystander the experience can have a profound impact on your well-being, And it
0: affected my mental health. It had that big impact on my self-esteem and self-worth. Hi, I'm Sana Kadar, and today on All In The Mind,
1: workplace bullies, corporate psychopaths, and what motivates them. According to Beyond Blue, about one in two Australian employees will experience bullying at some point in their careers. Victim stories like Tina's abound, though that's not her real name. But you know who you never hear from? Bullies themselves. We searched for a former or reformed workplace bully to speak to, someone who had gained insight into their behaviour and could explain what motivated them. Finding someone so self-aware and willing to chat was, as you can imagine, a stretch. We came up empty-handed.
2: I think there's two reasons. One is people don't want to personally admit if they've bullied others. And the other category is I think some people who have bullied others don't want to admit it at all to anyone, even themselves, or they may not realise, or they may not acknowledge that they've been a bully. My understanding is that there is some data that exists and if people are answering a survey anonymously, they're much more likely to admit it. Dr Rachel Hannum is a psychologist and workplace mediator. She's worked on dozens
1: of bullying cases, mostly in government, education and NGOs. I asked her whether, in her experience, those accused of bullying ever own up to their
2: behaviour. Sometimes it's, you know, probably less than half the time that they would own up to that behaviour. Very often if the bullying has been going on and the workplace deals with it, it takes a long time and staff who are being bullied continue to leave. I've seen that situation and it goes on and on until the bully quits their job. SafeWork Australia defines workplace bullying as
1: repeated, unreasonable behaviour directed at an employee or group of employees that creates a risk to health and safety. Repeated is the key word here. One-off incidents don't count. Tina's experience was especially harrowing because it began with sexual harassment. It's had a lasting impact on her career
0: and mental health. So about 20 years ago... I was a young executive working in a medium-sized business and my boss, who was in fact a director of the organisation, made numerous uh, sexual advances, sleazy comments, um, which I managed to deflect on most occasions. But the particular incident, which was a real turning point, it was a bit more calculated, was on a regional trip and we were uh, travelling in his car to a regional country town and he had organised the accommodation and when we turned up at the accommodation he had indicated that there was only one room available so we had to share a room and I was frightened. I didn't know what to do. I was in a country town and I felt completely powerless. I was cornered. And you know, I, I had to just go along with, with, um, with what happened. And it, it wasn't by choice. I felt... I felt cornered. I really felt cornered. And it was totally against my moral compass. I just had to let him take advantage of me. And I have a lot of guilt. Around that, and I still, to this day have to um, work through those those emotions. You know it had a massive impact on my self-esteem and self-worth because I started to sort of you know question myself.
1: After that trip, Tina avoided being alone with her boss and shut down any advances. That's when his behaviour switched to bullying.
0: So from that point on, he then excluded me from various meetings and emails and often gaslighted me. So he'd humiliate me in meetings in front of other colleagues about particular tasks that I supposedly hadn't completed and really led me to believe that I'd overlooked something. But when I looked deeper, I found that I was actually never included in a lot of those emails or tasks or meetings in the first place. So after about 12 months or so of this behaviour, he called me into his office and told me my position had been made redundant and that there wasn't any other position available for me within the business.
1: That's awful. How did you feel at that point?
0: So when I look back now, a redundancy was a good outcome, but at the time it was a real insult to injury. You know, those that have ever been made redundant will understand that it really makes you question your ability and worth. And I was already broken. And, you know, I left things, you know, I swept it under the carpet I can cope with this, I can just move on, and didn't realise the underlying effects that it would have on my mental health and that downward spiral that led me to depression and suicidal thoughts at a later stage. The way Tina was treated is
1: appalling, but sadly it isn't unique, though not all cases of bullying overlap with sexual harassment. And while bullying can have a profound impact on victims and their mental health, it also poses a cost to business and the economy. According to SafeWork Australia, workers with psychological distress take four times as many sick days per month compared to other employees. Lost productivity as a result of bullying is estimated to cost the economy up to $36 billion annually. So why do bullies do it? And why do organizations allow it? Dr. Victor Soho researches workplace abuse at the University of Melbourne.
3: One of the key things that we have identified in many contexts is people thinking that Bullying could be an effective instrument to get other people to perform. So basically, people think of humiliating behavior, of offensive behavior, as a way to in- enhance your performance. And, and you know, when you say it this way, it obviously sounds counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people think that shouting at you or yelling at you or making uh, condescending remarks when they are giving you feedback, that that's a way for you to get a grip when, in fact, if people are not really explaining to you what you did wrong or how to do things better, obviously the humiliation and the condescension are not going to help. Another thing that definitely is a clear norm that motivates bullying is people thinking that it is okay to use bullying and aggression as a way to compete with other people. So imagine in a team, people are competing for bonuses or for specific important projects, and then they start undermining each other because that's the way to enhance their own performance relative to others. Then there are other elements that we wouldn't think of them as motivating factors for abuse, but more as enabling conditions for abuse. So you could think about how tolerant the organization is for abuse. And we could think of tolerance in two ways, in terms of what processes or practices are in place to manage any incident of abuse, so if there are clear policies, if people could go on the intranet of the organization and look at the policy and see what is going to happen if somebody behaves inappropriately, if we have noticed in the past that there is a clear reporting mechanism that people follow through and, an independent investigation. So all of these things tell you that, structurally, we don't tolerate abuse in this organization. And at the same time, you have another component that could be thought of as being softer, which is how leaders behave. So do leaders make clear public statements of support for respectful behavior at work? Do leaders call out inappropriate behavior, even when they think it's on the lower intensity side of the behavior?
1: So what kinds of workplaces in particular enable bullying and what kinds are effective at preventing it?
3: From the research, what we know is work environments that are hyper-competitive. So where people have to compete all the time for very large rewards. So we're talking about two different factors here that are closely related. So hyper-competition is one of them. And the other one is when the reward system that has been put in place means that If you don't get the highest possible reward, you typically get nothing. So imagine a situation where we're talking about bonuses and Mm. the difference between not getting a bonus or getting one is having the down payment for your house. If you are in a hyper competitive environment and the rewards that you will get if you win are disproportionately larger relative to your performance or that of others, uh, you will more likely engage in some form of, of unfair competition. And that could be in the form of abusing other people as a way to get them out of your way. And we know that power disparity could be a massive factor here. So in organizations where your supervisor has a lot of power disproportionate to yours, and by power we mean, you know, not only access to resources but the capacity to make arbitrary decisions without having to explain themselves, that could have a large impact on your career. So in those situations where there is a lot of power disparity, you will also find that bullying could, you know, flourish and be very difficult for people to call it out or to do anything about it. So obviously in work environments that are on the opposite end where the organizational hierarchy is not that, you know, tall, where people is more flat and people are used to treat each other as equals, In those environments, people probably are less concerned with their status and we're competing for disproportionate uh, rewards. So bullying in a structural sort of way, you know, in terms of how things have been designed is less likely to occur.
1: Dr. Victor Soho says a lack of job clarity when people aren't sure who's responsible for certain tasks can also contribute to workplace bullying
3: because you're putting people in a situation where there will be a lot of friction between different employees or where people's resources to cope with difficult situations are being depleted.
1: Does that mean in the right toxic mix, any one of us could find ourselves being a bully?
3: Yes. No question about that. Mm. But you know, we all want to believe that we have an agency, right? That we as humans, that we have a clear moral compass and that we are able to self-regulate and to control ourselves. And you know, that's that's fantastic. But we also know that people who are putting in very difficult situations do struggle to resist the urge to engage in negative behavior. It's not that it's impossible, of course it's perfectly possible for people to do that, but in the right situation, even unwittingly, people might engage in bullying behaviour.
1: Organisational factors are just one part of the equation. Personality plays a role in whether a person is inclined to bully, too. Here's Dr. Victor Soho again.
3: I mean, we know that there are many structural aspects of organizations and institutions who appear to be the key drivers of bullying. However, people have also identified some personality traits or personality characteristics that are related to displaying bullying behavior. One of them is the trait of honesty, humility. So basically, the general level of respect and consideration that we are used to Afford to other people, to give to other people, to show to others. So if you're a person who, in general, thinks that other humans are worthy or respect uh, for themselves, not because you could use them, you are probably less likely to engage in bullying and harassment. However, if you think of other people as instruments to an end, and to the point that it is a pathological way of thinking, so you could imagine the classic narcissistic personality or the classic psychopathic personality, which is a very extreme quite rare also, events. But these sort of personalities typically would display behavior that is quite inconsiderate, you know, in relation to other people. When we talk about the psychopath or the narcissist, these are events of lower probability in an organization, and that wouldn't be able to explain the massive rate of bullying that we have observed. There are two other personality traits that we know are related to bullying. One of them is low conscientiousness and high neuroticism. So basically, low conscientiousness has to do with people who are disorganized, who cannot plan properly, who struggle to set clear goals you know, for themselves and other people, and to follow rules. And people who are high in neuroticism are those who are more likely to experience negative affect and negative emotions, and also who are emotionally unstable. Okay, so they could have um, mood swings. So if you're a boss, and we know that bullying, unfortunately, at least two-thirds of the bullying incidents are are from a supervisor towards an employee, but if you're a boss who is disorganized, who struggles to set clear goals, who doesn't know how to explain to somebody else how to follow a process, probably you will struggle also to delegate tasks to people. And what's going to happen in that situation is that you are going to poorly structure a task that you are delegating. The employee might fail at the task because they didn't know what success looked like in that situation. And then you will have to find yourself in the situation of explaining to them what went wrong. But if you have struggled to articulate the task in the first place, you probably will also struggle to give them feedback. And if on top of that, you are prone to experiencing negative emotions, you could see how this will put you in an interpersonal situation where you, instead of giving proper feedback, you will end up humiliating or being offensive to your employee. Mm
1: -hmm. What about a personality type that's passive aggressive? Um, Can they be a type of bully by ignoring people?
3: Yes, absolutely. In fact, I'm, I'm bullying. Um, ignoring people is a very common form of bullying. Mm-hmm. Okay, and it's problematic because remember that you're in a work environment, right? You need to communicate with people to be able to be effective at your job. But also, psychological isolation is um is quite psychologically debilitating for people. So having to deal with somebody who constantly ignores you in meetings or who excludes you from emails. When they are sending information that it's important for you to complete your task, it could have a large effect on your safety and and health.
1: How much of an overlap is there between sexual harassment and bullying or racism and bullying? Do those behaviors tend to go hand in hand? Yeah.
3: Unfortunately, again, they do. So we know that there is a strong correlation between incivility, which is low intensity, high frequency, negative interpersonal interactions, where there is no clarity if the person is trying to harm you or not. So that is related to bullying, that is also related to harassment, racial harassment and sexual harassment. Actually, bullying, a lot of the time, is manifest in a gender way or in a racist way. These things are related.
1: And so for the victims of workplace bullies and even bystanders, what do we know about the impact that bullying has on them in the workplace?
3: Well, the impact of bullying on people's well-being, performance on the whole organization, actually, and productivity is quite severe. So we know that bullying, at least the research is clear about the impact of bullying on uh, anxiety, depression, um, PTSD. So, all of them increase when people are experiencing bullying or exposed to bullying. In the specific case of depression, we also know that bullying is related to suicidal ideation, okay, to suicidal thoughts. So, we have enough research to be able to say that. Unfortunately, we don't have enough research to be able to see clearly what correlation or what association might be between bullying and actual suicide. Obviously it is related to lower job satisfaction, to lower organizational commitment. People typically want to leave work environments where they have been personally bullied or where they have seen other people being bullied. It's interesting, sometimes it doesn't matter if you're not the target, but if somebody else around you is being bullied and Mm -hmm. you saw that nobody did anything about this situation, that's enough, okay, to have an impact on your own well-being and to also make you want to leave the organization.
1: While Dr. Soho's research focuses primarily on the organizational factors that cause workplace bullying, others look more closely at personality. And if you've read or seen much coverage of workplace bullying, at some point you'll come across the term corporate psychopaths.
0: Have you ever had a boss and thought, you know what, that boss is a psychopath?
2: (laughs) crazy. Crazy! There's a growing realisation psychopaths are thriving in today's workplace.
1: According to the textbooks, every large company has them. Clive Boddy is a professor of management at the University of Tasmania. He researches psychopathic leadership and its relationship to workplace bullying.
4: Corporate psychopaths and psychopaths in general are people who are lacking a conscience in what they do. So they're ruthless towards other people and totally devoted to self-orientation and self-promotion. In terms of the difference between them and your average bully, bullying and psychopathy go together in a linear relationship. So in other words, there's a high correlation between the two. And I would argue that at the bottommost levels of psychopathy, you get almost no bullying. So it's a continuum. And it's strongly related with each other. So, bullying seems to entail some kind of callousness and indifference and ruthlessness towards other people by its very definition. And that is what's characteristic of psychopaths. They're motivated by power, control, and money. Those are the three things they're after as as psychopaths in corporations. And they'll do anything they can to reach those goals. And bullying is used by them as a means of command and control. So if they create a reputation for themselves as bullies and as people who abuse their fellow employees, that reputation prevents people from challenging them. And this enables them to fulfill their self-oriented agenda rather than an organizationally oriented agenda.
1: Is there certain kinds of workplaces that seem to attract or enable them in particular?
4: I think high-pressure, results-oriented workplaces which are driven by monetary rewards seem to attract more psychopathic individuals than other organizations do. There's very little research to back this up, but some studies have found that the highest incidence of average psychopathy is among CEOs and lawyers, and the lowest incidence of average psychopathy is among people in the caring professions, nurses, beauticians, people who work in care homes. If you're oriented towards helping other people, then that means you are selfless rather than self-centred, whereas if you're after money and rewards, then you go into things like corporate banking. I think in some organisations, this sort of behaviour becomes culturally acceptable over time. So that if you ask somebody in a highly intense corporate banking situation, are you bullied, they'd probably say no. But if you ask them, have you been ridiculed by your supervisor in the past week, which is an element of bullying, they may well say yes. But they're so used to it, it's so common, it's so widespread, that they cease to think of it as bullying, whereas actually it is.
1: There's a lot of criticism around the label corporate psychopath, that it contributes to the stigma around mental health, especially as it's a label ascribed to others without a formal diagnosis. So how do you go about doing your research?
4: Well, I use other reports of behavior. So I ask people to write their current manager on a variety of behavioral measures, including a measure of what is essentially primary psychopathy or corporate psychopathy, as I call it. So these are the essential ingredients of psychopathy, but without the criminal elements. So some measures of psychopathy have things like recidivism in them, whereas successful psychopaths seem to be able to avoid contact with legal authorities, and therefore they have a clean background, a non-criminal background. These are the ones that do well in organizational settings.
1: And do you have a response to people who do have criticism of the label for corporate psychopaths?
4: Yes, I've seen criticism of the label because it seems to be blaming people with mental health problems for things like what they do as psychopaths. Whereas some recent research I've just done but haven't reported on yet shows that the presence of corporate psychopaths in workplaces engenders large degrees of mental health issues in those they work with because they're so abusive and bullying and controlling. The psychopaths themselves seem to be perfectly happy with their own personalities, and they're highly functional in terms of what they do and how they do it. So they don't see themselves as people with mental health issues. Mm. So they almost have an I'll get you mentality, so I'll get you before you get me, without realizing nobody else has any plans to get them. It's only them that um, feel as if you have to be ruthless to get on in seniority.
1: That's really interesting. Um, Over the course of your research, have there been any anecdotes or examples of workplace bullying that stick in your mind in particular?
4: Yes, one very strong one. My quantitative measure of workplace bullying ended with a maximum frequency of once per day. But in some qualitative research that we did later, we found evidence of one particular workplace psychopath who was a man bullying multiple people every day of every week of every year and on top of that it was an open plan office so he would go right up to someone's face and shout at them in their face until they cried until they burst in tears and he'd do this to several people a day again in this open plan office and so Quite clearly, my scale that ended up once a day was inadequate to capture the full range of bullying because he was bullying up to four people a day and the effects of doing that in close proximity to all the other people in the department, it's almost as if everybody's been bullied in the whole department at the same time because then we can all see and witness the abuse that's going on.
1: Given that people with psychopathy are said to make up about 1% of the population, how common are they actually in the workplace?
4: Well, there's no reason to believe that they're not around 1%. The problem is that because of they are good at upward impression management skills and they're good at claiming the work of others that they haven't really done themselves and they're good at lying about their qualifications and experience and they don't get flustered because of their lack of emotional response... They're good at getting hired in the first place and also good at getting promoted. So the evidence is that the higher you go, the more psychopathic people are and the more psychopaths that there are at the top of the organization. I mean, the only real evidence we've got is something like 1% at the bottom and 4% at the top of organizations. And this ability to get promoted, of course, into leadership positions magnifies or amplifies the bad effect they have on the organisation and they start to affect the organization's culture in an ethically negative direction.
1: So can bullying ever really be stamped out? Dr Victor Soho.
3: I think it is perfectly possible to reduce the prevalence of bullying. We do see a lot of variability in the prevalence of bullying, you know, across organizations and across economic sectors and across different kind of jobs. So if that's the case, so if there are organizations and industries and jobs where harassment and bullying is less prevalent, that means that it is possible to create situations where these events are less likely to occur. And we have plenty of evidence about this. What we need to do is to use the evidence that we already have about which factors create these disparities and start creating environments where bullying is less likely to occur.
2: Workplace mediator Dr Rachel Hannum has a slightly different take. Look, I think if we're realistic, it'll never be fully stamped out. Look at human history, look at every culture across time. There's always been abuses of power everywhere. I think raising awareness, public education and and organisational education programmes have helped to some extent, but humans are so capable of change as well. If they weren't, I wouldn't continue to be a psychologist. I know that they are, and I have seen it. I've seen people who've behaved badly, whether it's in the workplace or in their marriage or in a family, and they have hit rock bottom, which is often, not always, but often what it takes, hitting some sort of rock bottom where people wake up and have a realisation, quickly or slowly, I can't keep doing this. So I never... You know, I I never give up on anybody. As for Tina,
1: her experience has motivated her to try and help others. She now works for an anti-bullying organisation.
0: My struggle and experiences has created an incredible strength and passion now for me to create education and awareness and better understand why it occurs and how we can reduce its prevalence. I still see a psychologist today And to this day, I do work daily on my own self-worth and work on that internal critic. And I'm not ashamed to talk about that. Um, It's been the best thing for me and it makes me a better person. And ultimately, that's the end goal for me to be the best version of myself.
1: That's all in the mind for this week. Thanks to producer Diane Dean and sound engineer Martin Peralta. Thanks also to Bully Zero, an organisation that works to reduce and prevent bullying through education and awareness programmes. There's more information on our website. I'm Sana Kadar. Thanks for listening. Catch you next week.